Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Kelly for History 256. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, Western expansion and the final two of the big five changes that happened in American society. So the five big changes. Remember last class we talked about the first three, which was the rise of big business, immigration, and urbanization. Uh, today we're going to be talking mainly about the close of Western expansion, but also challenges to faith and confidence. However, it's primarily the Western class. So I'll give you a second to just go on to Moodle and get your PowerPoint. So this is about the close of Western expansion. This is my Wild West uh, lecture. Uh, I'm quite fond of the West. Uh, if you ever come to my office, you'll probably see a lot of Western memorabilia. Um, spent many good years with my parents. Uh, they, they used to stay in Montana for the summer. And uh, spent many good years going out there, checking it out. It's just a beautiful country, beautiful area. I would, I would highly recommend you go to it. But today we're talking about kind of how it ended, theoretically. It, it has a heyday for a while after the Civil War, and then almost as quickly as it starts, it ends. And it really comes to frame a lot of how we view about America. Now, after the war, but before Grant's presidency, so you know, maybe during Andrew Johnson, during all the stuff in Reconstruction, uh, the country once again becomes interested in Western expansion. Now, remember, the country has been around for, you know, for a while now, about four score and seven years, well, a little bit longer than that now that Lincoln's passed, once we get into Reconstruction. But for about 100 years or so, the United States has, always, has not always existed, but the United States has existed. And Western expansion has been a very big influence. Uh, through various means some dubious, some not so dubious. The United States has gotten a lot of land. Uh, if you talk earlier, you talk about things like Manifest Destiny. However, by the time we get to um, post-World War, post-Civil War, not post-World War, good God, post-Civil War, uh, the U.S. pretty much owns or has territory, most of the land between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Our modern-day continental United States, uh, California had been a state for a while, Oregon had been a territory for a while. This is your classic Oregon, tale, Oregon Trail time period. But kind of that place in the middle, your Dakota territory, your Colorado territory, your Utah territory, uh, it is, I don't want to say unoccupied, because there are definitely people living there. There are Native Americans living there. Uh, however, uh, most Americans, white settlers, we have to call it, have not come there yet. And there's a big emphasis placed upon this after the Civil War. Um, in fact, a lot of the interest and money that might have gone to the South instead goes to the West. A lot of people from both sides of the Civil War decide, you know what, we want to go West. Not only that, a lot of uh, freed slaves uh, go to places like Kansas and Oklahoma. Oh, well, not Oklahoma yet. Um, Kansas is the big one, Exodusters, uh, as a place where they can maybe get away, maybe get a, a new life. And so... Um, a lot of this is because Native American lands and Indian lands, whichever you want to call it, uh, these are lands which are viewed as very rich in resources. They become the targets for more than a few broken trees. Um, the United States had given the Native Americans various treaties. Remember, theoretically, uh, Native Americans exist as a separate nation, a separate, not quite country, but a theoretically independent people within the United States. Uh, that is most definitely the case in this time period. Uh, this is after the things like the Trail of Tears. 
Um, most Native Americans in this time period are living in uh, what's called Indian Territory. That's modern-day Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma in this time period is reserved solely for Native Americans. Uh, in fact, uh, there was even a Supreme Court case a couple months back where basically said that a good portion of Oklahoma was still under uh, Native American uh, jurisdiction because of the various treaties. Um, the old name of Oklahoma was just straight-up Indian Territory. So there's a lot of uh, contention about what's going to happen with the Native American lands. I mean, are we going to choose between the gun or the peace pipe? Um, basically, it ends up with a lot of smoke kind of clouding everything. Also, uh, the Army is now using a lot more uh, Civil War generals, a lot more Civil War Union officers. Um, they're the ones who are being the Army in the West. Uh, that becomes a thing for a while. Granted, the large size of the Union Army has uh, decreased significantly. Uh, that's one thing the U.S. is uncomfortable with. That's actually kind of a hallmark in this class, is that the United States, for most of its history, is uncomfortable with the idea of a standing army. Uh, it's not until after World War II where you have like a standing army that stays in place at its current size in the United States. Uh, you have demilitarization after this. Um, you still have, of course, like the, the infrastructure, the, um, your generals, your, your um, officers and things, training companies that are definitely still done within the U.S. military. But most of the um, everyday grunt soldiers had since gone. But these new generals in charge of uh, keeping the peace theoretically with the Native Americans, I think of things like the U.S. Cavalry, things like that. I'm sure you've seen cowboy movies or whatever. Um, they're much more aggressive. Uh, beforehand, this is before the Civil War, uh, they're not as willing to really fight the Native Americans so much, to fight the Indian, various Indian tribes. Uh, these new officers that have gone through the Civil War are more willing to bring, quote-unquote, total war to the Native Americans. And although several peace treaties are signed, none of these really bring lasting peace. Um, that is a hallmark of what happens in the United States with Native American policy. A lot of treaties, most of these treaties get broken. It can be very problematic. Now, when Ulysses S. Grant comes into office, there is some question amongst the Native Americans. There, there is some worry amongst the various Native American tribes about how is Grant going to act here? You know, is he going to be the Civil War general he was? Um, during the Civil War, Grant was known for being quite aggressive. Uh, he's the reason why... I would not say he's the reason why the Union won the Civil War, because the Union was going to win the Civil War anyway, but he was the best general the Union had. He was crushing the South left and right on the Western Front of the Civil War, which is in the West we're talking about now, but you know he's the one who's fighting around Mississippi, uh, Tennessee, places like that, not in the eastern part of the Civil War. And Grant was known for being a very aggressive general. And so there's, there's questions, there's some worry amongst the Native American tribes about how is Grant going to be as president. And actually, somewhat inexplicably, inexplicably uh, Grant is fairly peaceful. He's, um, he doesn't really take too much um, action towards the Native Americans. Uh, most of his attention was firmly upon the South and Reconstruction, uh, so he doesn't really have that much time and energy. And honestly, he doesn't really seem to care too much about uh, Indian issues. However, without a strong mandate or a, or a clear course of action, uh, his policies were never too successful. Uh, one of the things that does get pretty big in this time period is something called the Dawes Act. 
Uh, the Dawes Act is passed basically to try to move Native Americans towards farming and uh, also try to convert them into Christianity. Uh, most Native American tribes, particularly those in the West, if you talk about the Sioux, if you talk about the um, the Apache, the uh, well, the Comanche are in Texas. The Comanches are a bit different because they're mainly raiders. But uh, most of these great Western tribes are nomadic. Um, tribes in the East, your quote-unquote civilized tribes, uh, that's the Creek, uh, Cherokee, uh, Seminole, Choctaw, and one other that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Uh, they're, they're ones that are more based on farming. Uh, they're the ones who actually get most of Oklahoma. But most of your Western tribes are nomadic. Uh, they mainly follow the buffalo. Uh, we will talk about the buffalo in just a second. Don't worry, I will talk a lot about buffalo. Um, now, the Dawes Act really tries to push Native Americans towards farming. Really tries to push them towards uh, Christianity. Try to convert them. Uh, there's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot that, you know, you need to kill the Indian to make a good American. Now, they're not actually saying literally kill Native Americans, although they would sometimes literally kill Native Americans. It's the idea of changing their culture. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, so that, that kind of does it for, uh, for Grant. Also, I should mention uh, the problem with Grant's Board of Indian Affairs. Uh, that was what the cabinet position was called at that time period. Um, I'm just going to apologize right now. I'm going to use the terms Native American and Indian kind of interchangeably. I don't mean to offend, um, but a lot of times when you're talking this time period, the, the word they use is Indian. Uh, I know that's not technically correct because they're not from India, but at the time period, it's it's the Board of Indian Affairs. And remember, as we said last class, the term Native American meant like white people who were born in the United States. Um, just one of those anachronisms which kind of makes things pretty confusing. So if I say um, Indian, I mean Native American. If I say Native American today, uh, when we're talking about the West, I also mean, you know, like the tribes and stuff. So just a little heads up about that. Um, problem with, uh, with uh, Grant's Board of Indian Affairs is that, like most of Grant's agencies, it was pretty corrupt. Uh, Grant was a very good general. Grant was not a very good executive. Uh, when you look at the list of worst U.S. presidents, Grant's usually in the bottom ten, uh, more than likely bottom five. Uh, rarely is he in, like, the bottom three. But he's usually on the lower end of, like, good presidents, uh, mainly because he knows nothing about being a good executive. Uh, he knows nothing about being a very good administrator. He's a very good general. But that doesn't necessarily translate to being a good, um, you know, politician or a good member of the executive branch or choosing people well. And uh, his board of Indian affairs is rife with corruption. A lot of people uh, embezzling a lot of different funds. Um, what's next? Uh, growth of urbanization. We talked about that last next class. Um, a lot of these cities start coming up around the West. Uh, a lot of different cities come around the West. Uh, most of them are because of uh, military influence. A lot of these towns are because of military influences. Uh, a lot of these towns are old forts that get turned into cities. Uh, that's not too unusual. Most of these forts start out as U.S. Army bases. So I'm trying to make sure uh, they can keep an eye on the Native Americans and also protect settlers. Uh, that is an issue quite a bit throughout the Western expansion. 
Uh, it is very logical for towns to come up around army bases. Uh, that's something that happens nowadays. Uh, likewise, it's not too surprising that these western towns come up around a lot of these military uh, military forts and whatnot. Uh, that said, towns in the west tend to be much better structured and much better planned than their eastern counterparts. Uh, I don't have a picture, but I would highly recommend, highly, 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 highly recommend, uh, you look at a map at a place like uh, Denver or Salt Lake City or or Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, and compare it to a place like uh, Boston or New Orleans. Uh, New York, Manhattan's a different example because actually Manhattan is a pretty good grid setup. But if you look at a place like Boston, uh, the streets are just cattywampus. They're all crazy. Uh, there's no real good lines. You know, streets change names. It can be very confusing. Uh, New Orleans is the same way. Streets are all over the place. Uh, my hometown of Baton Rouge, it's just streets are everywhere. It, 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 it's not very well laid out. Now compare that especially to a place like Salt Lake City. Uh, Salt Lake City, all the streets and avenues are numbered, and it's pretty much your distance from the Mormon Temple. Basically, you can, you know, if you're on 3rd Street, you know you're three streets away from the Mormon Temple. If you're on 43rd Street, you're 43 streets from the Mormon Temple. And the streets are very wide. Uh, Brigham Young, the guy who laid out uh, Salt Lake City, he basically wanted to make sure that the streets were wide enough that you could have two horse carriages uh, pass by each other, do your turns, without them hitting anything. So western cities tend to be very well laid out. They're also the most highly dependent upon federal government. They're most highly dependent upon federal um, money and federal uh, resources to get them started, which is interesting because... Um, most Westerners will claim to be the most, like, independent, the most, uh, you know, oh, we don't need the federal government, we're, we're our own people, that's a lot of the romanticism of the West. However, if you look at history, if you look at these towns, uh, they are highly dependent upon the federal government for funding and getting things running. So that's a lot of these cities that come about. Um, why they come about? Well, one of the big reasons is the Homestead Act. Uh, the Homestead Act is one of the reasons why uh, the West really blows up in this time period. It's one of those acts which is passed, um, I believe it gets its start a little bit before the Civil War, but it really expands afterward. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of one of these, uh, one, some of these lands. Uh, this is not technically homesteading. This is actually land from one of the railroad companies. Remember the... Uh, the U.S. government gave land to the railroad companies to try to justify uh, the expense of building the railroad. Uh, this is basically the uh, Burlington and Missouri Railroad Company offering land in Iowa and Nebraska. Uh, fairly low interest rate, 6% interest, 10-year uh, credit, which is pretty good. That picture is a fantasy. I've been to Iowa and Nebraska. Uh, it, it's pretty territory. It's pretty land. If you like farmland, it's actually some of the best farmland you'll ever see. But no part of Iowa or Nebraska looks like that. That is that is way too hilly and tree to be Iowa or Nebraska. Uh, that's a pretty good price, you know, 6% interest, uh, fairly cheap lots. Remember, this is some of your best land you could possibly get because this is railroad land, which means they are right next to the railroad track, which is really good. However, if you want land maybe a little bit further away from the railroad track, uh, there is an even cheaper price you can get which is free. Uh, the federal government will literally give you land for free in the West 
if you go and do an improvement over the course of 10 years, um, the lot is 40 acres. Uh, that is where they get the idea of 40 acres of a mule from is because the standard uh, plot size is 40 acres um, for homesteading. So basically you get 40 acres of land. And if you show improvement over 10 years, you will get that land for freezies. For completely free, you get land. You cannot beat that price. Now, um, this land is usually done for farming. Some of the land is good. Some land is not that good. Uh, usually the best land was the land taken over by the railroad companies or somebody else already got. But if you're a settler, you could most definitely say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to a place like um, you know, Idaho or the Dakotas or Minnesota, or pretty much anywhere in the West, and you know you get 40 acres, and you have to show improvement. What do they mean by improvement? Uh, generally, an improvement means a building of some sort. Basically, if you build a building of some sort on your land over the course of 10 years, you get the land for free. Now, to build the building, uh, you can either borrow against the land to get a builder, or a lot of times, people just build it themselves. Things like log cabins, uh, that can be a problem in the far west once you have no trees. That can be a very large problem. You can't build logs when you don't have trees. Uh, so they do things like sod houses. Also, in some places, all you need is like a mine or a shack or just something to show you have uh, settled the land. Uh, the federal government is mainly interested in getting people in these places. Uh, it's not really interested in um, really making money off of this. Uh, homesteading is generally not a way for the U.S. government to get money. It's generally a way for, you know, maybe spread out a little bit. Uh, now, there are problems with homesteading, particularly when you talk about farming. Uh, the further out west you go, uh, the more arid it becomes. There's not as much land. Uh, vegetation is not as thick. Uh, yes, in a place like Iowa or Nebraska, that is, like, the best farmland possibly in the world. Like, that is some beautiful, beautiful farmland. Uh, once you get into the Dakotas or like West Texas or um, Arizona, Utah, places like that, it becomes a lot more dry, a lot more desert-like. Um, it's harder to grow things there. Uh, there was an idea of the time period that the uh, rain follows the plow. Uh, they didn't know too much science, but they thought, hey, if you start tilling up the land, if you start digging and planting crops, uh, rain is going to come. That's not how this works. Also, they start trying to grow plants which don't do very well in these western places. Um, you know, in a place like Arizona or something, uh, you can't grow crops the same way you can in a place like Nebraska or Iowa. Uh, that causes a problem. A lot of these farms are not sustainable. Um, so the federal government starts trying to change things up. Uh, one of the things they do later on is when you get to the, uh, the further west, like a place like Nevada or uh, Arizona, the homestead grants get a lot bigger. Uh, instead of 40 acres, you would get 160 acres. Uh, basically, they, they say, hey, you're going to need more land to you know, help people out. Also, it was just a lot more land. I mean, if you look at the United States, if, if you've never been out west, I'd highly recommend it. Um, once you get into, like, West Texas, like, pretty much between, like, West Texas and, and California, it's it's a lot of space. Like tons of space like you know big sky country montana uh you know just wide open spaces uh, that's the west there there is a lot of land and not a lot of people there absolutely still the case to this day but the question arose 
how exactly are we going to do anything in this land? Um, I should also mention real quick when we talk about urbanization, um, remember last class we talked about the urban growth? Uh, the West was kind of seen as a safety valve. Uh, the idea being that if if people get if things get too crowded, you can always go west. Uh, that's something that gets very ingrained in American popular thought and philosophy. I'll talk about that later when we get to the end of the West. But you know, with the East and uh, cities growing and becoming overly crowded, also lack of job opportunities, they believed. Um, you know, there's a very popular phrase, "Go west, young man." The idea being, hey, you know what? If everything goes bad, we can go west and make something better. Um, their cheap land is definitely a um, a draw. Now, there is other things that draw people toward the West. Um, there is gold, <laughs> theoretically, gold and other valuable minerals. Uh, that's one of the reasons why California grows so quick is there's a gold rush in 1840, uh, 1849. That's where we get the name, you know, the 49ers. Uh, that, that is one of the reasons why California becomes a state is because there is a gold rush. Uh, other parts of the West do have uh, valuable minerals. Uh, there, there's not a ton of them, and it's not enough to really sustain long-term growth, but you do have some, like, you know, gold towns and stuff that come up. Uh, that can be a problem. So they start trying to figure out how are we going to, you know, uh, long-term crops don't grow very well. There's not a lot of trees or thick vegetation. we got to figure out a way to make money in the West. And they ultimately do... And it becomes a very lucrative, uh, uh, very lucrative uh, trade for a while. Has to do with cattle. Now, to explain why cattle get so big during this time period, you need to understand federal use of land. This can be a very contentious topic. Uh, nowadays, it's a very contentious topic. Uh, I've, even today, uh, today is August seventeenth, two thousand twenty-twenty, and it's said that uh, the Trump administration will be drilling in uh, of the Arctic. Uh, which is, you know, theoretically federal protected land, uh, that can be an issue nowadays, basically what you can and can't do on federal land. Um, you know, if you're on a national park, you can't, like, start drilling for oil. That that, that can be problematic. Well, whoop, that's a bad example because the Trump administration does allow that today. But uh, in general, you know, you just can't open up a private business on um, federal land without permission. Now, in this time period, because there is so much federal land and not a lot of oversight, the federal government's okay with you doing what you want on their land. In particular, in places in the West, where pretty much the only thing that grows is like grass and shrubs, uh, they realize pretty quick that uh, one of the ways you can make a lot of money, thanks to the railroad, is through cattle. Raising cattle, because the federal government does not charge for grazing rights. Now, hopefully a few of y'all, maybe one or two of y'all, um, maybe have like ranchers in your family. Maybe you have some cows. Maybe you're, you know, your grandparents or maybe, hey, heck, maybe even your parents. Maybe you own a cow yourself. That'd be pretty cool if you do. Uh, grazing rights are a huge, huge issue. Um, cows are pretty destructive when it comes to what they eat. Uh, cows will destroy your crops if you don't have a fence around them. Cows will wander and pretty much do whatever they want. Uh, and cows can eat. You know, a cow's a couple tons, a few thousand pounds, uh, maybe not that heavy. But, you know, they're, they're several hundred pounds, those cows. They can eat, and they eat a lot, and they'll just, like, take over your stuff. 
nowadays, grazing rights are a huge issue. And if you allow grazing rights for cows, you can make a lot of money. Uh, growing up, my, my grandfather's wife, who um, wasn't really my grandmother, if that makes sense. Like, she, she married my grandfather after my grandmother died. If So, step-grandmother? Is that a thing? I don't know. My grandfather's wife. Anywho, uh, she owned several hundred acres in North Louisiana. And she didn't use it all. You know, she, she had, like, her little house, and we had a little pond. But uh, most of it was just, like, land she had no use for. And so she let uh, a rancher who lived nearby graze in her land. Basically, the, uh, the rancher guy paid her money, uh, paid her a pretty good bit of money, to basically allow his cows to graze on his land. Uh, that can be a lot of money, uh, especially nowadays. But this time period, it's free if you go onto federal land. This is the rise of the cattle kingdom because... Uh, thanks to the railroads and refrigerated rail cars, we talked about last class, uh, people are able to get meat in, like, cuts. People, you know, you don't have to buy an entire cow if you want to eat meat. You can just buy, you know, a pound of meat or a steak or something instead of a whole cow. Likewise, you can ship the cows over on trains to um, slaughterhouses who are better prepared to, like, get the cows on ice immediately. Uh, this becomes the grand age of the cattle kingdom. This is your cattle barons. These are your cowboys. This is a time where basically um, the way it works is, you know, you're in a place like Texas or Arizona. All right. You get your cowboys to, like, bring the cows out, bring them out to the free land, you know, the free grazing land. Um, you know, you have to have the cowboys keep the cows in line, make sure they don't wander off wherever they want. Keep them kind of like shepherding almost. Uh, let them eat and get fat. And then once they get big and fat, you bring them back to uh, to the cattle yard, to the stockyard. Uh, a big one is Fort Worth. If you've ever been to Fort Worth, uh, Texas, it's right next to Dallas. Well, not right next to Dallas. It used to be right next to Dallas, and now they've pretty much merged into one big city, the Metroplex. But uh, Fort Worth was the stockyards. Basically, you know, that's where all the cows got driven. They'd hop on a train. You know, they have these cars for, for cows. They'd ship the cows over to the uh, butchers, to the, uh, to the, to the um, slaughterhouses. A lot of them happen to be in Chicago. I'm not sure why it's Chicago, but it just was. Uh, once the cows get slaughtered at the slaughterhouse, the cuts of meat go in refrigerator rail cars everywhere, and you can make yourself a ton of money. This changes American diets. Uh, cattle barons get really rich because, remember, you don't necessarily have to own land to do this now. You just have to buy a cow, pay your cowboys, and then uh, you know send them off to the federal land for a while because the federal land is free grazing rights. This is the rise of the cowboys. This is the very romanticized part of American society, the, the cowboy. I mean, if you want to talk about romanticized images of the United States, you're going to have the cowboy. And I just want you to imagine a cowboy in your head real quick. Like, if I were to tell you, hey, what does a cowboy look like? You know, what type of person is a cowboy? You know, what sort of ideals do cowboys have? You're, you're probably going to you know, think about a... Oh, he, he's definitely a white guy, you know, white guy. He's a, oh, he, he's his own man. He's very independent, probably has a gun on his hip, you know, because he, he has shootouts of the OK Corral. Well, shootouts at high noon. There was a shootout at high OK Corral. You know, he's a bad dude, uh, you know, willing to shoot, willing to kill folks. Very fiercely independent. He's his own man, you know, sets his own time, does what he wants. Uh, he don't care about civilization, uh, he doesn't like, you know, city folk or, like, being clean, taking baths, things like that. That's just frou-frou city stuff. He's a man's man. Uh, might whip out his guitar, you know, out on the prairie and, 
and play his music. Uh, yeah, just that real romanticized America vision of the cowboy. We all know that, right? Uh, all right, you, you imagine that? All right, you ready for me to destroy that image? Because, like, all of that is fake. All Everything we think we know about cowboys, or you think you know about cowboys, uh, comes from Hollywood, and it's not historically accurate. All right, historically accurate cowboys. Here we go. Number one, the vast majority of cowboys, something like 40 to 50% of cowboys were Mexican or Hispanic. Uh, cowboys were Mexican by and large, uh, just for the area. Most of what we know about uh, cowboy life comes from Mexican cowboys. Uh, vaqueros, um, our term buckaroo is probably a, a anglicized bastardization of the term vaquero. Uh, lassos come from, um, come from Mexico. Uh, pretty much everything you know about cowboy life is Mexican. Not just that, the second largest percentage of cowboys are black. Uh, you got a lot of black cowboys. You got a lot of black cowboys. Not as many as Mexican cowboys, but you still have a lot of black cowboys. Uh, white cowboys are about a quarter of the cowboy population. About 75% are either black or Hispanic. Uh, they are not independent by any sense. Um, they work for wages. Uh, cowboys generally do not own the cows. In fact, rarely if ever does a cowboy actually own the cow. Um, usually they work for somebody and they get paid a wage for it. Uh, cowboys rarely carry guns on them. Uh, I'm not saying there weren't guns. Generally the gun was in the chuck wagon with the cook. Also on a, on a cowboy, you know, on a, on a, on a cowboy outing. What's the word I'm looking for here? You know, when you're, when you're going out to the, to the wilderness with your, with your, with your, with your herd, uh, the cattle boss, okay. The, the, uh, the trail boss is number one. Uh, that's also generally not the owner of the uh, cows. That's like the overseer. That's like the ma uh, manager. Uh, number two is the cook. The cook is always the second in command. He's probably the guy who has the rifle for coyotes and stuff. Um, cowboys generally wouldn't carry a gun because cows are very large. And if a cow hears a large noise, like a loud noise, cows can stampede, which is bad because you might get trampled, but also the cows might run away and do their own thing. Also, uh, most cowboys um, were cool with civilization. Like they, you know, they, they, you know, they enjoy their time out on the range, but by and large, they were happy to come back to town, happy to hang out with other people. Um, no cowboy ever carried a guitar because that's just silly. That's uh, way too big and unwieldy when you're out on the range. Um, that's just, that's just, that's unwieldy. Um, you might have a harmonica because that's much smaller. Uh, let's see. They didn't have guns. Oh yeah. Uh, cowboys were also pretty, um, pretty, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, pretty keen on cleaning themselves. Um, they 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 realize like if, if things get dusty if you uh, you know if you don't bathe on a regular basis out on the range um, you know it, I, granted they may not have like soap and shampoo or anything but like if you don't like clean your dust off if you don't like you know make sure your feet in particular are um, clean and safe you could get really bad blisters you can have all sorts of bad problems if your feet get jacked up if they get too dirty if they get too dusty so a lot of times these cowboys are like pretty pretty uh. Pretty gung-ho on making sure they're clean. Uh, when a cowboy came into town, generally the first place they went is a bath, uh, is to get a bath. 
Uh, likewise, there weren't too many gunfights in the West. I'm not saying there were none, but they weren't all that common. It was no more dangerous than any other part of the country. Um, for instance, the showdown of the OK Corral is probably the most famous gunfight in Western history. That involved like five or six people, I think two of whom died. Um, you know, dueling and stuff is not super common. Most of the time, the people who settled the West are like Civil War veterans who've had their fill of fighting and aren't really keen on, on fighting or doing that much violence anyway. So next time anybody talks to you about a cowboy or what cowboy life, you know, don't think a, a white guy with a guitar. Uh, think of like a, you know, a brown person, uh, either a black or a Hispanic person who's, you know, kind of doing their own shtick. Uh, they, they get romanticized uh, by, by Hollywood much, much later. Uh, now, the cattle, it, the cattle does have issues. Uh, the primary thing is that cattles, uh, cattles, cattles, listen to me, cows and farming don't go together very well. Uh, cows will trample your crops. Cows will eat your crops. And the, one of the things the cowboys did is make sure they don't go on anybody's land, make sure the cows stay away from farmers and crops. Uh, generally, farmers don't like cowboys very much. Uh, because they, like, trample their crops and think they own everything. Uh, land rights become a very big issue in the West. Uh, if there is ever violence or contention in the West, a lot of times it's over land rights or particular water rights. Uh, that's a big deal, particularly more arid parts of the West. Uh, cows need water, but also plants need water. So if you're, like, going to try to irrigate a pond or something, um, and remember, a lot of this is federal land, so they're, you know, they can use it for free. Uh, the cows could theoretically drink all the pond water, but also farmers could use the pond water or the little rivers or whatever. It can get very, very contentious between the two of them. Um, cowboys pretty much last until the invent of barbed wire. Uh, maybe some of you who have cows now know about barbed wire. Uh, barbed wire is a way that they could have fencing in the West without a lot of trees. Uh, basically, you make a fence with barbed wire. The cows won't go across it because it hurts them. And now, thanks to barbed wire, uh, cows just can't wander anywhere they want. They, they become a lot more particular. And so the cowboy movement in the United States lasts about eh, 15 to 20 years. However, it becomes romanticized and made in cowboy movies for forever onward. Uh, town development, we talked a little bit about that with urbanization. What I want you to know about that is just like, you know, a lot of these are cow towns, places like Fort Worth, or they're made by the military, a place like Fort Collins. Uh, in general, much better planned out than their eastern counterparts. Now, you also have, quote-unquote, Indian Wars, and this is a problematic thing. Um, I would hesitate to call them wars. Um, uh, how do I say this? How do I say this? Um, oh, also something I really should say about uh, Western towns before we get into the Indian Wars. Uh, Western towns actually tend to be pretty diverse places. <laughs> Uh, it's not just white people. You actually have a lot of Indian people, freed slaves, all sorts of immigrants. You have Mexicans, other Hispanics. Also have quite a bit of Chinese people, particularly in um, California. We'll talk about that whenever we start talking about uh, the Chinese experience in California in a week or two. I should also mention that most of these areas do not exactly relish uh, the idea of being completely independent. Uh, they really try to become states as soon as possible uh, to have more government, more law and order. Uh, they really don't relish the idea of being so isolated. Um, 
generally in the West, when you talk about Western expansion, Western settlement, isolation is death. Um, you, you might have your, your romanticized version, like, oh, there's the old prospector who doesn't like having people around. He likes his wide open spaces. Uh, that's not really accurate. I'm not saying there are none, but by and large, most people in these places try to be as close to other people as possible, mainly because it can be a kind of a dangerous place. Uh, it is a very harsh place when it comes to the environment. And also there are fears of Native Americans. Now, this is where we get into the Indian Wars. And like I said, it's a very problematic term to call it a war because it's very rarely a war, quote-unquote, as we know it. Uh, war implies things like a declaration of war, or equal sides, or strategy, or like prolonged campaigns. doesn't really happen here. Uh, what generally tended to happen here is that here's pretty much the, the standard... Uh, slate of events that happens. Okay, U.S. government makes agreement or treaty with Native American tribe promising land and that no settlers will come. Then settlers come. Settlers start encroaching on land. Native Americans get upset. Native Americans start raiding land. Um, you know, settlers and farmers get raided by Native Americans. They cry for the U.S. Army, U.S. military to help them out. Uh, the cavalry comes in. There's a fight. And then, basically, Native Americans move out. It's very rarely warfare as we know it. Uh, there's no prolonged campaigns. There's no, like, you know... It's basically a series of skirmishes, honestly. It's a series of skirmishes that happen, by and large, kind of moving around. Also, some tribes get pretty big on raiding. Uh, people like the Comanche. That's probably the best example of that. Uh, the Comanche are the ones that are very big on this. Uh, if you see the slide of Indian Wars, uh, that never happened. Uh, you see, like, you know, horses and, well, Native Americans, of course, had horses instead of the U.S. Cavalry. But this kind of widespread, you know, both sides meeting in one field combat didn't really happen that often. There's only a few occurrences when it happened. In fact, we're going to talk about one of the few occurrences where it happened. Uh, that pretty much does it. What people I do want you to know about is the Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, these are some of the first black combat soldiers in the United States. Uh, black folks have been allowed in the military, mainly to exist as things like uh, stevedores, laborers, cooks, body servants, things like that. Uh, now, thanks to basically post-Civil War, and plus there's, you know, it is kind of the West, and it is kind of isolated, and some soldiers might not want to go there. You have some of your first American soldiers. Uh, they get called Buffalo Soldiers by the Native Americans as a term of respect. Uh, the reason they call them Buffalo Soldiers um, has nothing to do with their uh, skin color, because remember, Native Americans are dark skin too. Uh, basically, it comes from either one or two things. Number one, uh, the, their ferocity, like the idea that, you know, oh, they fight as, you know, as strong as buffaloes. Basically, they're, they're very good warriors. It's out of respect. Uh, the other one has to do with hair. Um, African Americans... Coarse, thick hair. Uh, the Native Americans had like straight, long hair, and they're like, "Oh, their hair's thick and curly, kind of like a buffalo." Uh, I'm sure that was not very taken very well by the African Americans. Like, really, you're, you're talking about my hair? But uh, those are buffalo soldiers. Why they're important is because of they're the first black combat troops that we really have in the United States. Now, this is the time where Tully talks about something he loves to talk about, and that's buffalo. Oh my God. Buffalo. If you don't know me, which you don't because it's probably your first semester with me, 
Uh, I am obsessed with buffalo. American bison, if you come to my office, you will see all sorts of pictures of buffalo around there. Um, I love eating buffalo meat. That's my favorite type of meat, bar none. Um, I have a pair of buffalo skin boots. Uh, I, I might wear them one of these days to class. Maybe I'll wear them wherever we come into class for this. Probably not because they're very hot. But I have, I have buffalo skin boots. Uh, my iPad cover is buffalo. I, I am obsessed with buffalo. I adore the buffalo because uh, I think they're cool animals, but also because of the historical aspect of them. In fact, if I were to have a time machine, all right, if I were to have a time machine, it's like, you know, Tully, you can go anywhere you want in history. Uh, not the number one, number one place I would go, but like maybe the number three or four place I would go is to see the great buffalo herd that existed in this time period. Uh, for a while, there was a super herd within the United States and the western side of the United States and Western Territory, a super herd of like several million buffalo big. I just want you to imagine like, you know, a million buffalo, several hundred thousand buffalo, all in one area. And they, they described it, those who saw it, as like a city. It's like a moving city that just like wandered around, did its own thing, grazed, like was over several states worth of territory. You know, so like in Montana, in the Dakotas, in Wyoming, places like that, uh, Nebraska. It would wander, this, this giant, giant, giant um, herd of buffalo, super herd of buffalo, would wander around and just eat. It would eat, it would do all sorts of cool things, and it was ginormous. They, they said it was like looking at an ocean. You know, you, you'd walk over a hill, you'd just see like an ocean of buffalo. Oh, I would love to see that. I, I would, oh, it just seems so, so cool. Now, because of this, um, buffalo become very central to the existence of many Plains tribes. Uh, people like the Sioux, uh, their entire livelihood is the buffalo. Uh, actually, you know, a few hundred years ago, uh, most of these tribes farmed. It wasn't until horses came around uh, that horses were actually brought over by the Europeans, um, and horses get over to the West once they go wild. Uh, once it, once horses come to the Native American tribes, uh, they're more they're better to more efficiently hunt buffalo. They can you know, actually ride after them. This becomes a center of their existence. They stop farming and literally become nomads following this huge buffalo herd. There are other buffalo herds too. Just the mega herd is one that's like a couple hundred thousand, not a million buffalo. Which, like I said, I would love to see like an ocean of buffalo. That just sounds so freaking cool. Uh, you're finding more about my personality. Like, you can ask my wife or any of my friends. They're like, yeah, Telly is obsessed with buffalo. And so the Native American tribes are like, the buffalo is central to them. Like, the buffalo is central to everything. It's not just food. It's how they make their teepees. It's uh, buffalo fat becomes like a major part of stuff. They, they make their clothes that way. Um, they use buffalo bones and to do all sorts of different things. Like, you know, it's the old adage... They used every part of the buffalo. Well, they do. They use pretty much every part of the buffalo. And it's a big honking deal because they just kill one buffalo and that can feed them for like a good long time. And, you know, you kill a few buffalo, you can make a teepee out of it, make your clothes out of it. Um, everything is used out of the buffalo. And these tribes, you know, that's one of the reasons why they're very resistant to um, farming and the Dawes Act is because they got everything they need with the buffalo. The buffalo provides everything. Now, another fact about buffalo, <clears throat> they're not very easily domesticated. In fact, uh, some people say that buffalo can't be domesticated. Uh, 
which is fairly true. Buffalo are very hesitant to, um, I mean, they don't really respond well to barriers or, or um, you know, gates or fences or anything like that. They don't do well. They're very hard to train. Uh, theoretically, there are trained buffalo out there. That's a bit of a misnomer because they're theoretically not actually buffalo. They're a cross between buffalo and uh, beef cows. They're the same genus, so they can reproduce. But buffalo in their natural habitat are not very easily domesticable. They're almost impossible to domesticate. Also, they don't respond well to fencing because they're just too darn big. Uh, buffalo are about twice the size of a cow. Like, they're huge. Uh, they can trample through anything. Um, when it comes to, like, natural predators, uh, generally buffalo don't charge. They stand their ground because they know they're a lot bigger. And so, when it, you know, whenever a buffalo is... Um, attacked or threatened, generally buffalo are going to stay in place. Now, I bet you're wondering, well, that's okay. How might that be bad? Well, it's really bad for farmers. Um, <laughs> people trying to farm in these lands where the buffaloes are roaming are pretty screwed over by buffalo because buffalo will trample all your crops even worse than a cattle would, and plus buffalo aren't being, you know, led by anything. At least with a cow trampling, you can blame the cowboy. Uh, there are no cowboys for buffaloes. You have Native Americans who just, you know, kill and eat those delicious buffalo. But um, that's what happens there. Uh, the other thing is buffalo are very bad for, and what really gets them uh, kind of on the top of the get rid of list is with trains. Uh, buffalo and trains do not go together whatsoever. In fact, it's because of the railroads then you have your first uh, railroad hunters, your first buffalo hunters uh, that are, you know, the first white buffalo hunters, I should say. And they're not hunting for food. They're mainly hunting to get rid of the buffalo from the track. The, um, the buffalo generally, once it saw a train, would not move because when buffaloes are you know, threatened, they generally stand their ground. Uh, the train could not move. A buffalo could also, like, trample the track. That could become very expensive, destroying the track. It could derail a train. Uh, buffaloes are a huge hazard for these western trains. So it starts out initially where you just have a buffalo hunter on a train. Basically, they, they kind of stay up front with their buffalo rifle. Also, buffaloes are very hard to kill with guns in this time period. Uh, they're actually still pretty hard to kill with guns in this time period, particularly with a bow and arrow. Buffaloes are hard to kill with a, buffalo, with a bow and arrow. Uh, their hides are so thick, you have to like pretty much hit very certain points to kill them. Pretty much the eye and part of the like chest is where their heart is. Uh, otherwise, uh, buffalo hides are so thick that most guns in this time period, the buffalo would uh, like kind of the bullet would bounce off and not hurt as much. If you're hunting with a bow and arrow, you pretty much have to get the eye. Like it's a very very it can be an arduous task. Now, granted, most Native American tribes do it well because they have horses, they have multiple people. Uh, they're able to, like, they might have buffalo jumps, which is basically they get one buffalo away from the herd and scare it enough so it actually does start running, and they run it off a cliff. They'll kill it. Uh, later on, they just kind of trap them. Not trap them, but, like, you know, surround them with horses and stuff. Uh, hunting a buffalo is very tricky. But these buffalo hunters would stay in front of, you know, basically stand on the, um, front, of the you know, front of the engine, front of the train engine, look for buffalo getting close to the track or on the track, and kill them. It takes a lot of skill to do this. Uh, for instance, Buffalo Bill Cody, William Cody, uh, later known for his Wild West show, uh, gets his start in buffalo hunting with the uh, Kansas Railroad. Basically, he kills buffalo for the Kansas Railroad. Uh, he become Actually, he literally has a contest with another buffalo hunter for the name Buffalo Bill. We'll talk about that in a little bit. 
Uh, that's how it starts out, is basically, like, kill a few buffalo. Uh, then it becomes, like, kill more buffalo because it's fun. And also they realize this kind of screws over the Native American tribes who they're trying to get on uh, reservations. Basically, by killing buffalo, they are taking rid of their food source. Now, at first, it's no big deal because, you know, you have several million buffalo the tribes can replenish. But then you get to the point, if you go over one picture, they start allowing the uh, people on the train, just the various passengers, to carry a rifle, like a strong buffalo rifle. Uh, guns get better because of the buffalo. Uh, the prevalence of buffalo, basically, bu- guns get stronger. The, ha- the rifles have higher caliber. They're able to punch through the hide a little bit better. So then in a few years, you have tons of passengers on the train just ready to shoot a buffalo while they're you know riding through the uh, countryside. At first, it's if they're only on the train track. Then it's like, hey, I just see a buffalo way over there. You can shoot it. You can kill it. You know, that's they, they think it's fun. It's Iowa hunting. I would barely call it hunting because it's really not sporting. You're really not, like, stalking the buffalo or anything. You're just, hey, hey there's a buffalo really far away. Bang, bang, bang. Oh, I got it. Cool. And they leave the buffalo meat to rot. Uh, this really upsets a lot of the Native Americans because that is their food source. And, you know, one buffalo is a few thousand pounds. You could feed yourself for you know, a long time. You could dry the meat. You could do things with the herd, with the, uh, with the, the furs. Um, there's, a, there's a very brief craze for buffalo hide rugs uh, w- amongst white people, amongst, uh, you know, the rest of the eastern part of America. That doesn't last too long. But uh, basically, there is a crazy killing spree of buffalo. Like, in about 15 years... Uh, the United States goes from having 5 million buffalo to a single thousand in 15 years. They nearly hunt the buffalo to extinction. I, I don't even use the word hunt. Slaughter. Um, between the trains and the white people, they pretty much nearly slaughter all the buffalo. You go from a few million, like these mega herds, mega herds that are the size of cities, an ocean of buffalo, to only a few thousand buffalo in the entire country. This has the effect of really screwing over Native Americans. I cannot, I cannot iterate that strong enough. This screws over Native Americans. Remember, one of the reasons to do buffalo hunting was to kind of break the will of Native Americans, make them more complacent, quote-unquote, make them more likely to go into the reservation system. This upsets, because if you go over another side, you're going to see just how many buffalo skulls they get. That's the Indian Pacific Railroad with their buffalo hunters, collecting the skulls afterwards. Uh, later on, buffalo skulls become kind of a, a commodity, just like as a thing to have above. Uh, this next picture is a fairly famous picture. That's actually in Michigan. That's in Mich- Michigan. They make a pyramid of buffalo skulls. Uh, I know Michigan is not what you think about with the Wild West, but Michigan is, you know, west of the East Coast, uh, northwestern and stuff. That's that's in Chicago. It's Illinois, but that's fairly close to Michigan. That is a. I don't even want to think of how many buffalo that they killed to make that pyramid. But the thing I want you to realize with that big pyramid, it's not like they ate them all. It's not like they like made hides or anything out of it. Most of that buffalo meat was put to rot. This really upsets the Native Americans. Um, really, actually makes Native Americans somewhat sympathetic. Like once it becomes very desperate, uh, some white people, some Americans start feeling kind of sorry for the Native Americans. They're like, hey, maybe we should push the dolls act even further. Uh, maybe we should um, assimilate them more into American culture. We should have schools and things like that for Native Americans. 
Uh, that really doesn't tend to work out too much. The Dolls Act kind of ends up with more land being taken away because the land that was reserved for Native Americans is now taking over for more white people. Uh, primo example is Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma was Indian territory for theory. That was going to be Indian land, Native American land for, for forever and perpetuity. Um, by like the turn of the century, by 1901, they've opened up Oklahoma for white settlers, and they start taking all the quote-unquote good land. Like all the easily farmable land white settlers are taking. And so this becomes a problem. Uh, well, before we get to that, let me talk a little bit about the one time that really upsets everything with the Indian Wars. And that's the Battle of Little Bighorn. I, I should mention that Little Bighorn is so well known because of how rare it was. Remember, most of these Indian wars were ba basically, you know, the U.S. Cavalry would come in, have a little raid, while well, the Native Americans would raid, like, a, a settlers. Cavalry would come in. A lot of hit and fade attacks. Very little, like, army together. And that's because the United States generally treated the Native American tribes as individual nations. They did not treat all the Native Americans as one big people, one big country. Um, there's a strong push within American society not to have Native Americans band together as one group. That could be something scary. Keep them divided. Keep them separate. Keep them at odds with each other. Or keep, you know, uh, negotiate with them separately. Don't let them unite. Don't let them ally. And that's what happens at Little Bighorn. Now, Little Bighorn is also known as Custard's Last Stand. And that means we because of George Armstrong Custer. Uh, go over one slide, you're going to see his picture. Uh, Custer is a general during the Civil War. Uh, however, that is just a battlefield promotion. He's really just more of a colonel. Uh, you know, Colonel, colonel Custer, George Custer. He only gets a battlefield promotion during the Civil War. After the Civil War, uh, he's a very young man during the Civil War, only in his early 20s. After the Civil War, he stays in the military. Uh, Custer goes to West Point, I should say. Custer does go to West Point, the U.S. Military Academy. Uh, that is a big deal. That's a, that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty big deal to go to. He does, however, set a record at his time at uh, West Point. He has the most demerits of anybody in uh, the you know, West Point history, and he actually graduates bottom of his class. However, around the time he graduates, it is a civil war, so he gets a commission, uh, during the Civil War, he gets a battlefield promotion to general. That's rescinded very uh, quickly. Battlefield promotion is basically like, you know, somebody dies, nobody knows who's in charge. So basically, Custer gets a, gets gets promoted to general. He loses the promotion later on, but still, he keeps the name General Custer because he was a general for a while. Very big on self promotion. Uh, he was known for being one of the first people to like take pictures of himself, take photographs of himself. Um, that picture you have is like uh, theoretically a selfie, a self portrait. Uh, he had the he had his long blonde hair. He considered himself like a uh, kind of like a oh, not like a movie star, but just like a good looking guy. Uh, he is very big on himself, very big on self promotion, and he is based in Fort Lincoln, which is in North Dakota, in the Dakota Territory. It's not a state yet. It's the Dakota Territory. It's nearby the Black Hills. Now the Black Hills are a very sacred space for the Sioux. Um. Uh, the Sioux are a Native American tribe. The Black Hills are a very important place of land for them. 
Um, Native American belief systems can be, they're not a one-to-one corollary with anything else. Each tribe has its own individual beliefs. However, there are some things that kind of unify them together. Uh, Native Americans are very, Native Americans in this time period, a lot of their belief system is very big on like uh, animal spirits, animal, you know, spirituality, um, not really gods, like lowercase g gods, but like spirits, uh, they have ancestral spirits, things like that. Uh, you also have a creator god. Uh, you would call this the capital case G god. Um, this is not unusual for most people, most most uh, you know native beliefs. You have this in Africa as well, where they have like spirits of smaller things, smaller deities. I would even, I would hesitate to even call it a lowercase G god, but there is an uppercase G god, but he's very like distant. You know, he created the world. He's not too involved in human affairs. Uh, generally, animal spirits are the ones that are most um, in line. And the Black Hills, they believed, is not where God lives, uppercase G, God lives, but, like, it's where God hangs out whenever he comes to Earth. Like, they believe that's kind of where part of the Earth was created. Uh, not quite the Garden of Eden, but, like, a place where it's, like, it's pretty important for, like, you know, it's not where man came from. It's like it's a sacred site, very, very sacred in the Sioux belief system for a lot of Native Americans in that area, where basically they believe this is where God hangs out. If God ever comes down to earth, you know, uppercase G, God, he doesn't come down too often, but when he does, he hangs out here. So at first, the U.S. government is pretty cool with it. They're like, hey, yeah, you can have the Black Hills. That's fine. Um, You know, these are hills. They're very hilly. They're not very good for farming. So the U.S. government's like, sure, we don't really care. Have that. You know, it's your sacred site. We're fine with it. That lasts until about 30 seconds after gold is discovered in the Black Hills. Uh, After gold is discovered in the Black Hills, uh, they kind of change the... (laughs) The U.S. government changes the parameters of the deal. They're like, uh, no, we want the Black Hills now. Uh, we, We told you initially you could have that. That's before we knew there was gold there. A lot of folks want to, you know, mine that gold, get that. Uh, the Sioux are very upset about this because, hey, this is sacred space for them. This is not the Garden of Eden or anything, but this is a very sacred site for the Sioux. And a lot of Sioux are very upset about this. Now, they get upset, but what they do, which makes the U.S. government go even further, is the Sioux talk to another tribe. They talk to the nearby Crow. Uh, if you look at that map, you're going to see Fort Lincoln's in North Dakota. The Sioux Reservation is in South Dakota. Uh, the Crow land is in southeastern Montana. So, like, right over the border of the Montana territory, that's where the Crow land is. The Crow kind of butt up next to the Sioux. That's where the reservations are. The Crow are another tribe. Uh, they are not identical to the Sioux. I mean, they have some overlap in belief systems, but they're a different tribe altogether. And basically, the Sioux and the Crow get together, and they say, hey, you know what? We're going to bind together. We're going to combine our warriors. We're going to combine that, and we're going to actually fight against the U.S. Army. That's what scares the U.S. government more than anything else. You know, as long as the tribes are separate, as long as they're negotiating separate, as long as they're not unifying, the U.S. government and the military believes they can keep things in control. But now... The Crow and the Sioux have bound together. Not only that, they've got the Sioux have a pretty good war chief by the name of Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull is the war chief who's behind all this. I don't think I have a poster of Sitting Bull. I don't have a poster of Sitting Bull. That's a bummer. 
Uh, Sitting Bull, he's a fairly famous uh, war chief for the Sioux. He becomes well-known for what he does here. He is the one leading this coalition of the Crow and the Sioux, which need I mention once again, these Native American tribes don't really unite together. That's something the U.S. government finds as scary. Now, in response to this, Custer, who's in Fort Lincoln, is told, hey, don't do anything. Wait for reinforcements. Wait for reinforcements. You know, we hear there's some stuff going on with the Sioux and the Crow. Likewise, I should mention, um, Custer, like most of the U.S. military, uh, does have a lot of Native American guides on their employment. Uh, it was not unusual for Native Americans to work for the U.S. government, uh, mainly as things like guides. It's a fairly stable gig. It's not just, you know, cowboys versus Indians. Actually, rarely was it cowboys versus Indians. It was usually Indians versus the U.S. cavalry. And a lot of times you have some Native Americans working for it. And, um... Custer's, you know, guides, his Native Americans that he has working for him are saying, hey, uh, the Crow and Sioux are binding together. They might do something. You know, it's a pretty big war party going on. You know, Custer tells us to his, uh, to his superiors. His superiors say, wait, just wait, wait, wait. By the way, this happens in 1876. That's the centennial. So Reconstruction's still kind of going on. And, you know, they're, they're told, you know, Custer's told, you need to wait. Custer decides not to wait. Custer, for whatever reason, probably delusions of grandeur, says, you know what? I know I'm outmanned. I'm outgunned. I am going to bust into this coalition. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're um, militarizing. They're coming together in Crow land in southeast Montana. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go past my supply lines. I'm going to try to take them out quickly. Despite the fact that Custer was told otherwise. Um, there is strong evidence that if Custer would have lived, if this would have worked, Custer would have still gotten court, would have gotten court-martialed. However, he would say that eh, even if they court-martialed me, because I did something great, they wouldn't court-martial me, I'd become a hero. Kind of wants to get the glory. Uh, he comes into a massacre. Uh, this picture here of Custer's last stand is inaccurate for many different reasons, mainly because Custer tried to get the high ground, not the low ground. Uh, Custer is greatly outnumbered, greatly outgunned. Um, it's a rout. It, this is a, a massacre. Basically, the Native Americans, the combination of Sioux and Crow, led by Sitting Bull, just demolish Custer. The reason this is noteworthy is, number one, because it's a centennial. You know, it's 100 years of America. Uh, most Americans, if they pay attention to the news, have been told, hey, you know, Native Americans are almost gone. You know, we, we've killed so many of their buffalo. They're going away, away, away. And now uh, Custer is killed. Likewise, Custer kind of becomes a dramatic, romantic, tragic hero for his death. Um, instead of a buffoon who, you know, disobeyed orders, it's now a romanticized thing. Uh, his widow, he marries only like a month or two before this. Not even a month or two, a little more than a month or two. Uh, not a full year before this, he marries a woman, marries a young girl, she's barely a teenager. Wow, not barely a teenager, barely out of her teens. Woo, no, 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 she's like 19 years old. She's not 12. She is 19 years old. Uh, she never marries. She does this big thing about, oh, I'm Custer's widow. He's the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, makes this big show about it, kind of champion his past. Um, little Bighorn, you know, Custer's last stand becomes a really major deal in American um, society of this time period. Uh, if you go over one, if you ever go over one slide, you're going to see pictures I took whenever I was there. That's Custard's grave. A little bighorn, if you go over more slide, it's a very beautiful spot. I, I would say um, 
you know, I don't know what happens to us after we die, but if we have to rest wherever, you know, we die, like, that's a pretty beautiful scenery. Um, if you're driving to Montana from here, right after you come over the border from Wyoming into Montana, uh, it's like one of the first exits is Little Bighorn. I would recommend going to it. Uh, it is a national park now. They kind of have a pro custard tail there, but it's really just beautiful. It's really just beautiful. Uh, with the death of Custer, a lot more U.S. military comes in. They kind of force the Native Americans to go more into reservations. Likewise, because the buffalo are gone, they get kind of sad and desperate. Uh, what happens, thanks to the Dawes Act, like I said, it's very much centered on farming. Uh, they want Native Americans to farm. They're like, you know, the best thing you can do is to farm. That's the idea behind it. Um, most of these Native Americans aren't keen on farming. Remember, they've been following the buffalo for their lifetimes. And now that the buffalo are gone, they're not keen on farming. Also, uh, the Dawes Act gave Native Americans land based upon the family, not based upon the tribe. And they tried pretty well to keep the different tribes separate from each other. They didn't want to have too many tribes together. They were afraid of conspiracies and things like that. So Native Americans, who beforehand were not farmers and generally did not live by the individual family, they lived by the tribe, are now given plots of land to uh, farm. So, And also they're doing it by the family. If that wasn't problematic enough, you start having boarding schools. Now, boarding schools are one of those things, uh, kind of like Harry Potter, where basically in a boarding school, uh, theoretically Nichols is a boarding school. Uh, a few of you might live here in the dorms. But basically a boarding school is a school you live at. And because, you know, Oklahoma and all these Indian territories are very big swaths of land, um, it just makes sense for the students, you know, the, the Indian children, to go to a school they live at. And so basically the U.S. government says, hey, Native American children, come to these schools. You're going to come to the school. You're going to live at the school. And your farmer parents are going to hang out over there on the farm. Now, what do you have? Whenever, and by the way, they're taking children as young as three or four to these boarding schools. So what do you have if you're an insidious person, if you're somebody who's trying to break the will of the Native Americans, what do you have with a boarding school? Well, number one, you can get a kid young enough, teach them the language. They may never know their native language. Um, in these boarding schools, it was illegal to speak anything but English. It was illegal to do anything like Native Americanists. They're like, hey, we need to break you of this Native American culture. Uh, this was a thing in Louisiana for a long time. Maybe talk to some of your great-grandparents about schools wherever Cajun little boys and girls were not allowed to speak French. They had to speak English, and they'd get whooped if they spoke uh, French. Same thing in these Native American schools. These Indian schools, if you see a picture, go over one more, you'll see they are wearing uniforms They're you know, to do the American flag. They're only to speak English. So even when they go home, you know, if you get a kid as young as three or four, and all they do is they learn English— when they go home to their families, their parents may not be able to talk to them, or especially not their grandparents. Likewise, they may not know the culture. You know, in these Indian schools, they're taught everything about American culture. They're not told their native dances. They're not told their native, you know, religious rights. Uh, these schools were very big on Christianity. And not just that, but if we go even further, you know what else when you have whenever you have a small child at a school like this? A hostage. Yeah, this is a hostage. This is to make sure that Native American farmers who are now, you know, don't 
conspire too much. Don't buck the system because they have your children. They have your child. Granted, a child, they're almost, I don't want to say brainwashing, but they're, you know, instilling um, English, you know, where, you know, you're a Sioux. You may not speak Sioux. You might speak Sioux or you're Cherokee or you're Choctaw, Chickasaw, whatever. You're all these different tribes. And that kind of throws it off because that's going to make you not complacent, but make sure you don't buck the system too much. Uh, maybe some of you have children. I don't have any children, but I have a niece and I have, I have, I have nieces and nephews. And, um, you know, if somebody were to have my niece or nephew, they wouldn't even have to be threatening about doing anything to them. But if they have them and like they stay with them, you can get me to be a little bit more complacent. I can only imagine how much more it is when it's your own child. And that's a real lasting impact with these schools. Because even once the kid leaves the school, you know, when they graduate when they're 18 or whatever, they've spent like 15 years away from their parents. So whenever they do go back to their parents, they're strangers. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same customs. Oftentimes, they would leave because there's just not a lot of job opportunities in these uh, reservations. You could farm, but is that really a life for you? And so it kind of makes the Native Americans feel desperate. And this is where we get into the ghost dance. Now, the ghost dance is something that happens with Native Americans, but it is not unusual in human history. Um, new things are scary. Sometimes modern life is scary. Sometimes changes are scary. And it's a very common, very popular notion that the way we can improve the future is to go back to the ways of the past. Um, you could call it like a, a revival mindset. You know, we need to bring it back. Um, this idea we need to go back, you know, go back to what we used to do before because modern life is scary and different. Uh, this is something you see all over. You see in religion. I mean, um, revival is a pretty good example. Um, in certain Christian circles, revival is like, hey, we need to go back to the old ways, come back to the church, you know, go back to your Bible, that sort of thing. Um, what we know is modern uh, radical Islam, you know, your, your ISIS, your, your Al-Qaeda, your uh, things like that, they, that is also a re reaction against English uh, imperialism. Uh, we're going to talk about this, I believe, next class, uh, not two classes from now, about the Boxer Rebellion. The Boxer Rebellion is in this very same vein of basically an outside power is trying to change us, and the way to make things better is to go back to what we used to do. Because that's what happens with the ghost dance. The ghost dance is one of these go-back-to-what-we-used-to-do things. It also is theoretically the embodiment of all the different fears the U.S. government had about Native Americans coming together. Because the ghost dance itself is literally a dance, and that in of itself is not scary. Uh, basically, there is a prophet, a seer, whatever you want to call him, who starts to get, you know, he's, he claims he has a vision. He says, I had a vision of Jesus, white man's Jesus, but he, he looks like us because he's got dark skin and stuff. And he said, I want all the Native Americans to come together regardless of tribe and to do these things. He's like, we need to come together. We need to unify. If we dance this dance, literally dance this dance, uh, it's called the ghost dance. 
dance this dance, you know, it'll imbue us with the ancestral spirits, it'll make us stronger, their guns are not going to hurt us. Likewise, uh, once, once, uh, sorry for this week, once uh, Jesus gets rid of all the white people, uh, the buffalo are going to come back, uh, it's going to be nothing but blue skies for us Native Americans, all we need to do is unite together. Now, this dance in and of itself is not scary. I mean, it's just a dance. That's not what gets the U.S. government terrified of the ghost dance. It's the fact that this starts to spread like wildfire amongst all the different reservations. Remember, with the Dolls Act, you know, they try to keep the families by individual land, uh, not do by the tribe. Likewise, the different reservations are theoretically for one tribe, but they kind of do it piecemeal to all the different people in different places, so you may not be with your sub-tribe. I'm not going to get into Native American uh, social structures, but just know they're trying really hard to keep people disunified, keeping them not around people within their own tribe, their own sub-tribe, I should say. But the ghost dance is spreading everywhere, tribe by tribe. It's, it's one of those manias, one of those whatever you want to call it, where basically this starts spreading to different reservations. Hey, we can do something about the white man. We can take ownership. We could unify. And the unify is what scares the crippity crap out of the U.S. government. Because up until this point, the U.S. government has treated all these tribes as individuals. They don't say all Native Americans do X, Y, Z. They say, hey, this tribe lives here, this tribe lives there. You know, likewise, Custer, uh, Custer's Last Stand, all that stuff happened because the Sioux and the Crow come together. In fact, after Custer's Last Stand, the U.S. military comes really hard. They start, you know, cracking down on the Sioux and the Crow. Eventually, uh, Sitting Bull surrenders. He says, I will fight no more forever. Basically, he was trying to get into Canada to get uh, asylum. The Canadians turned him down. So ultimately, he's like, look, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm done. Uh, he gets a very interesting job. <laughs> uh, he starts working for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Uh, not even 10 years after Little Bighorn, he is doing recreations of it every night. Uh, that was a very big stand, a very big mainstay of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a reenactment of Little Bighorn. And Sitting Bull's in it. Like, after the show, you can pay an extra 50 cents and meet Sitting Bull. You can shake the hand of the man who killed Custard 10 years after it happened. That's crazy when you think about it. Like, just imagine, like, 10 years after 9-11, it's like, hey, meet Osama bin Laden in Branson. We have this show. It's a, it's a reenactment of the, the World Trade Center blowing up, and we have Osama bin Laden here. Like, it's really crazy when you think about it. But this ghost dance thing starts spreading. It starts getting even bigger. Um, actually, Sitting Bull is killed in the ghost dance mania. After one of these reenactments, somebody asked him if he's in favor of the ghost dance. He's actually shot and killed by basically two ghost dancers who feel he's not um, supporting them enough. It's a big, hairy mess. It's starting to get bigger and bigger. And the U.S. government is really freaking out about this. They think um, Native American solidarity might happen, and it might be something to be really concerned about. Now, what kills the ghost dance is Wounded Knee. Wounded Knee is a massacre. Wounded Knee is a massacre that for a long time the U.S. government pretend didn't exist. But basically what happens is there's a little village of Wounded Knee where the Native Americans, <clears throat> some of which are involved in the ghost dance, some of which aren't, are keeping their old people, their sick people, their children, 
basically they're non-combatants. They're staying in this little village called Wounded Knee. <clears throat> these are these are non-combatants: women, children, old people, sick people. They're hanging out in Wounded Knee. The U.S. military comes in with a Gatling gun. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Gatling gun, it's a proto machine gun. It's 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 like a it's like a machine gun mounted on a cannon. You just Turn the crank and bam, 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 bam. It, it kills like nobody's business. And basically, they bring Gatling guns to kill a whole bunch of Native American uh, women, children, sick people, old people. Uh, if you go over one more, you'll see a picture that for a long time the U.S. government pretended didn't exist. Uh, they buried everybody in a mass grave. For many, many years, the U.S. government claimed that wounded knee never happened. But it's clear that it did because, like, people died and there was mass graves. And although they tried to hide the photographs, photographs do come out. Uh, Wounded Knee pretty much kills the ghost dance. Because it shows, wow, the U.S. government is going to be brutal against us. Um, All this dancing, all this unification didn't help us. You know, um, the ghost dance was supposed to protect us from the American guns. Uh, Clearly, it did not. And pretty much after this point, uh, Native Americans are, I don't want to say a non-factor for settling, but they're not as central. They're they're definitely not as um, strong. Uh, Pretty much all the other tribes, those who may or may not have been involved in the ghost dance, pretty much become very complacent, very much willing not to do anything. They're pretty much done. There have been talks here or there about like Native American solidarity, things like that. Uh, however, the, as a military threat, it's pretty much completely over by this point. Uh, if you see the reduction of Native American land from 1850 to 1990, in 1850, pretty much everything west of the Mississippi, um, with the exclusion of California, California becomes a state shortly thereafter, was Native American. Uh, by, 18, uh, by the end of the Civil War, that's, that's a much better map, actually, 1865. You'll see California's not for Native Americans. Uh, Oregon and Washington are, you know, taking over parts of Montana, too. Um, 1865 to 1880, that's when you have everybody really push through the reservations. By the time we get to 1990, the reservations are even much smaller. Um, theoretically, Native Americans live on sovereign land. It's theoretically land owned by them. That is problematic. The ghost dance, like I said, it ends resistance. The reservation system becomes the hallmark of Native American existence, and they're pretty much a non-factor for future settlement. Pretty much Native Americans will not be a deterrent for the United States having people settle wherever they want. Now, the implication of this is something I want to talk about for a second called the Frontier Thesis. Um, In 1890... All right. Every 10 years, the U.S. Census Bureau does a census. They count out everybody in America. Uh, they're doing that right now. If you haven't done the census yet, I highly recommend you do it. Do it. It's, it's very important. But in 1890, the U.S. Census Bureau claims that there is no place left in the United States that it classifies as a frontier. Uh, how they define frontier is any place with less than two people per square mile. Now, I would argue that's problematic because, uh, first of all, if there's two people in a square mile, it's like, oh, you can't see or hear them. But also, it's like for the entire state as a whole. It's like even nowadays, a state like Nevada, if you go to Nevada, 
Pretty much the only places to live in Nevada are Reno and Las Vegas. The interior of Nevada, about 90% of Nevada is uh, federal land, and it's completely unoccupied. So there's way less than two people per square mile. But if you take the entire population of like Nevada and Re- of Las Vegas and Reno, and then like do math, because there's way more than two people per square mile in Las Vegas, it would do all of Nevada. So to say there's no more frontier is a dubious claim. But is this idea that basically for all of American history, there, the West has been seen as a safety valve. The idea that you could go west, kind of make your own person. Now, in 1893, there's an exhibition in Chicago called the Columbia Exhibition. Uh, theoretically done for the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's voyage. I know you're thinking that's 1492. We had to wait a year. took a while to build. Um, if I had a time machine, this is the number one place I would go. The Chicago Exhibition is a fascinating thing. They pretty much build a city out of nothing, out of a lagoon in Chicago. There's so many different exhibits, so much of what we know of modernity. Modern times comes from this, from this big fair in 1980, sorry, in 1893, not 1983, 1893. Uh, you can see all these exhibits. They, they build all these like big buildings, which are made of nothing but like plaster that like fall apart a year later. Uh, the first Ferris wheel is there. Big, fancy thing. I, I can literally talk about the Chicago, 1893 Chicago Exhibition almost as long as I can about Buffalo, and you'll hear me ramble about Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo Bill shows up. He does a show there. But what's interesting for our class is there's a young historian by the name of Frederick Jackson Turner. Write that name now. Frederick Jackson Turner. He presents a paper. Now, as a historian, that's something I have to do regularly. We regularly have conferences where we read our papers. Now, Frederick Jackson writes probably the most famous and important paper in American historiography. Now, I didn't say history. I said historiography. Historiography is a fancy word that just means the history of history, how history has written. How do we look at different things? Remember how we talked about, like, what is last class when we talked about the uh, different pamphlets, how we view things, how we interpret things? We talked about the Dunning School of Reconstruction. The way that Frederick Jackson Turner interpreted the American West has become, and basically American society, has become probably the defining document in the way that we study American history. Because in essence, Turner is arguing that the frontier was the guiding force in American history. The guiding force behind American development was the idea of the frontier, not necessarily the land itself, but the idea that you can go west and there's something you can make. There's wilderness, something you can create. For all of American history, if things get really bad, if things get really populated, the frontier was there for something you can develop, some place you could go, a place where you can prove yourself. And now it's gone. We have to figure out what we should do instead. Now, is it gone? That becomes problematic. Almost immediately, people start questioning that of, of, of Turner. But what isn't controversial, what isn't questioned, is the fact that this idea that you could always move west in America, you could always create a new identity, there's always an opportunity where you can make something new of yourself, is something for the country and something that's existed for a long time. It's called the frontier thesis. And now that the frontier is gone, this is starting to worry a lot of upper and middle class Americans because they're like, how are we going to prove ourselves? How can we show that there's no longer a safety valve? What can we do instead? And this comes to the fifth and final 
Don't you, you thought I was just talking about one thing. No. Fifth and final of the five big changes in American society from 1870-ish to 1910-ish. And that is challenges to faith and confidence. This one is probably the biggest in terms of scope, in terms of how much it impacted people, but it's also the hardest to explain because this is where we talk about like intellectual thought, philosophy, what we think about things. Basically, people believe people came to believe that the America they once knew was gone. What they used to believe in was changing. We talked about that with big business, about how like economics from across the country can impact you, and you may not be aware of that. This whole, all these things create a sense of what they believe is disorder. Now, one of them is a challenge to Protestantism. Um, before all this immigration, America was primarily Protestant, overwhelmingly Protestant. Uh, there's the adage of WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. The bulk of the American population is Protestant in this time period. However, new immigrants are coming in. Uh, a lot of them are Catholic. Uh, people from Italy... Um, Irish people are Catholic. Uh, Catholicism is a version of Christianity, but it's very different than Protestantism. There's some tenets and beliefs which are different. Um, I wouldn't say very different. I'd say like 90% of things that like Protestants and Catholics believe, like there's overlap. But there's some stuff they do have different opinions on. And people say it's different. You know, they're like, oh my God, the, you know, the, uh, the Pope might try to overwhelm us. If, you know, the Pope gives the, uh, the order, like there's this big army of Catholics here, what can we do about it? Uh, you know, you know, established Americans. What they would they would call themselves Native Americans believes that like this new influx of Protest of Catholics is going to destroy Protestantism. Uh, also, they believe that things like Darwin and evolution they're starting to get taught a little bit more. That is also challenging Protestantism, challenging religion. Uh, new roles for women and stuff is challenging religion. African Americans not you know complying with uh, old racial roles is challenging religion. All this stuff they think is challenging it. Likewise, uh, there are challenges to quote-unquote common sense. And this one is the one that's probably the deepest. You know, religion is something we can argue about Bible verses. I mean, Catholics read the Bible too. Oh, I should mention there are other religions coming in, not just Catholics, but like Jews are coming in. You know, Jewish people from Russia. Uh, Chinese people with their beliefs. you got Buddhism, Shintoism. Well, that's Japanese, actually. Um, all these different belief systems are coming in. Confucianism, which is not really belief, not really a religious system, but just a way of acting. All these different belief systems are coming in. It's not Protestantism. It's viewed as a challenge. But there's also challenges to quote-unquote common sense. There's all this new technology that they just don't understand. Uh, for instance, right now, you're listening to this on a computer of some sort. It might be your phone. It might be an um, iPad. It might be a computer. I don't know how you're listening to this, but you're listening to this on some sort of electronic device. Do you know how it works? Now, you're like, of course I know how it works. I click the buttons. No, 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 no. I'm not asking, do you know how to operate it? I mean, do you literally know how it works? Now, some of you here are computer science people are like, of course I know how it works. But for the vast majority of you... It, it might as well be black magic. It might as well be, like, miracles. Because, like, you press a key, and there's electronics, and there's computer chips. And I don't know how they get all these information on the computer chips. I just know that it works. But think about it. Before all this new technology comes in in this time period, you know, you can understand a horse. Do you understand, like, all the parts of a machine? Uh, you drove a car. I guarantee you everybody here probably drives a car. Maybe a few of your mechanics, but, like... 
how an internal combustion engine works. Like that's complicated. Like horses are easy to figure out. Give them grass and like they'll eat and then they can go places. Cars. There's all these moving parts. I mean, if a car breaks down, you have to take it to a mechanic. They might have to run it through a computer. It's confusing for us, but like we're used to it. We're accustomed to it. These people weren't. Likewise, you know, back at Tully's Tailors, wouldn't let you forget Raceland, but, you know, over in Raceland, you know, if we have a crop failure in Raceland, like, we understand why food's hard to come by. But now that we have a bigger economy with more things roaming around, like, oh, they had a, they had a, a famine over in, uh, you know, Detroit, and that's messing with our prices. So basically, the way that you lived your life, and I have to iterate this, the way that people lived their lives like before the Civil War, it was like the ways their parents lived their lives, which is the way their grandparents lived their lives, which is the way their great-grandparents lived their lives. Like, things didn't change all that much. I mean, horses didn't change all that much. You know, yeah, things might get a little faster, but, you know, the way you make shirts, like Tully's Tailors, the way that Tully tailored, you know, before the Civil War, before all these new shirt factories come in, was pretty much the way people tailored since, like, the dawn of time. Not the dawn of time, but, like, for hundreds of years. For pretty much as long as anybody can imagine. And now things are different. That's the big change now. Things are not the way they used to be. And that is scary. So just to reiterate, what are the five big changes? The five big changes that we talked about, 1870 to 1900, 1910-ish, somewhere in there. Well, let's talk about them real quick. Once again, go over. And remember, all these work in tandem. There's a lot of overlap with all these. You know, the lines between the two become very, very, very thin. But you have the rise of national businesses in an industrial system, whereas beforehand the country was primarily agricultural. You have immigration from different places, new immigrants, and frankly, a lot more immigrants. This, and causes number three, urban growth. There's a lot more people, a lot more folks out there, and these cities are growing so fast, they have to make some changes. Likewise, you have the the close of Western expansion. The West is different. The West is its own thing now. The West is gone. It's still there, but basically the way the West used to be is different. And like, you know, the Buffalo were gone. The way that we view with Native Americans has completely changed. All these kind of form together to form challenges to faith and confidence. So basically, what is our society? Now, this makes people kind of scared. This makes people want to figure out what's going to happen. What's going to change? Right now, we're in a time of flux. I don't think that's surprising to anybody. With the coronavirus, there's a lot of questions about what we're going to do. Who's in charge? Who's going to answer it? The way we used to do class, we can't do anymore because we're in a new world. Now, hopefully this world doesn't last as long as, like, you know, all these changes that happened after the Civil War. But we're still asking those questions, and it's very natural to be scared. It's very natural to have anxiety. But what we do with that anxiety, what we do with that fear really changes things. And next class, we're going to talk about what the United States does to answer a lot of those anxieties. So for that, this is Dr. Tully for History 256, reminding you how much I love Buffalo.